Good morning. Um, today we're going to have a scripture reading from John 16, 12 through 15. So if you want to turn there. It's John 16, 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thank you. All right. We are in a series on the book of John, and uh, we've been there quite a while, and we will be in there for a bit as we continue through. We're in a section starting with John 13, where it is Jesus' last teaching before he dies. This is his final huge moment to talk to his disciples, to tell them what he wants them to do, to tell them how they're going to be able to do it, where are they going to get the power to do it, to explain to them how it's going to work after he's gone and what they should be doing. And uh, just remember, uh, we've gone over this so many times. I know for those of you who, who come every week, this gets old. But remember, they, they, just, they had the Lord's Supper. It was a time of confusion and uncertainty because Jesus is teaching them things. He's telling them he's going to die. They cannot understand how he's going to die because they think that he's the leader of this great movement. You don't want the leader to die. That ends the movement, right? And he said someone's going to betray him. They have no, they can't imagine how that could be. And then, you know, it shows that it's Judas, and Judas leaves in a hurry, more uncertainty. Peter, he tells Peter, you're going to deny me? Peter cannot believe that. You know, and so there's all this turmoil and uncertainty, and now he's teaching them. And he taught them in 13, he taught them in 14, and he said, okay, let's go. And they go for a walk. They, they, they start walking through the Valley of Kidron, and, and it's a place where there's lots of grapevines. And what happens? He starts teaching them, using the grapevines as, as, as an example, as an illustration. Just brilliant. Jesus kind of goes without saying Jesus was a master teacher. I mean, being God really helps that whole process. So he, he's, he's, he's a master teacher. He's just picking things, and he's teaching them about it as they see them, so it becomes a very vivid illustration to them right? So he's, he's teaching them. And we get to, to chapter 16, and he's telling them something. He's telling them there's going to be, in verses 1 through 4, we went through this uh, last week, he, there's going to be this temptation to quit. Things are going to get hard. Things are going to get hard. And there's going to be this temptation to quit and how they can fight that temptation. And then he begins to teach them more. He's already taught them some. Teach them more about the role of the Holy Spirit. And so he talks about this um, uh, what the Holy Spirit's going to do and how he does it. He's going to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. He, he's he's going to be with them in times he warns them of persecution. He's going to be them with them. He's their advocate who's going to walk alongside them. And we learned a couple of things last week, and some people commented about them. So I just want to, I want to highlight. One of them is this, the conviction of sin makes the knowledge that Jesus died for you a power instead of a complex. And what does that mean? Here's what it could mean. If you realize that Jesus died for you, when you realize what he did, how bad you are, what that can lead you to is just feeling this overwhelming sense of guilt. Oh, I'm just a nothing. I'm just worthless. And there's a truth to that, but that's not the whole truth, right? That's not the whole truth. There's nothing we can do to, to improve our condition or standing with God. 
all right? Because we all are sinners. The flip side of that is we are worth so much to him that Jesus died for us, right? And so what does that do? It brings us power instead of putting a burden over us and upon us, all right? The second thing was this. Your ability to love the person who helps you is conditioned by your awareness of the need for help. Right? If you aren't aware that you need help, someone trying to help you is a, is a bother, is a problem. If you know you need help, someone trying to help you is a blessing, right? Um, my car is running great. And, you know, if somebody had come up to me and said, wow, your car seems to be running great, but I think I can fix it. I'm like, no, it's running great. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I am not letting you touch the motor of this vehicle if you think it needs to be fixed when it's running great. And then, a week and a half ago, my car died on the interstate. There's nothing scary. I tell you, you're sitting there in your car, and these little lights are flat. You know, little messages are popping up. You know, your engine is, it won't start. Reduce speed. Your brakes aren't working right. You're like that. And I felt like every once in a while I said, you're an idiot. You're an idiot, you know. What are you doing? Preventive maintenance, you jerk. And, and uh, so I'm pulling off and, and yeah, I got my little grandkid in the car with me, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm helpless. I'm helpless. So what happened? A state trooper showing up was a blessing. Usually when a state trooper pulls up really close behind your car, it's not a blessing, but it's a blessing. A tow truck showed up. That was a blessing. Went to the shop and friends here fixed it. That was a blessing because I was acutely aware of my need, right? So your ability to love the person who helps you is conditioned by your awareness of the need for help. That's very key for us. So we get into today's passage, which we just read. Thank you for reading. Um, I want you to understand there's some key teaching here for us concerning the Spirit of God. This is so important. The disciples would have failed without the Spirit of God. They would have failed. There would have been no impact. And we missed this last time or the time before. The historians still grapple with this. Why did Christianity explode all over the world? Why did it become what it is? Why are we here today when you have all this stuff against it? These main people were, were peasants in a country that was an insignificant country in an insignificant part of the world in the midst of this giant empire where there was tons, lots more places that were way more important. And that little movement in that insignificant country with those insignificant people overwhelmed the world. Overwhelmed the world. Spread, why? Everything's against it. It challenged the culture and the, and the social status of the prevailing uh, society. And they were hated for it. There were great persecutions where thousands lost their lives in horrific ways. And it spread like wildfire. And that's the spirit. The spirit empowers. Those people realized what God had done for them. And it became a power not a complex. That's so important for us because we all yearn for the truth. We all have in our heart a longing for God. We're made that way. And the Bible says there is a personal God who speaks and thinks 
and interacts with us. It's not just a vague force that you merge into. Our God is personal. It talks about all through scripture. There's a relationship here and it's based on communication. He has thoughts. He understands things better than we do. He communicates with us because look, You can't have a personal relationship with a dog. Now, I know it feels like it sometimes, right? I know when you had a dog all those years, you just feel the dog anticipates things. The dog senses things, right? And it can be very close, but there's no actual interchange of propositions. A dog can't tell you, these are my hopes. These are my dreams. This is what I yearn for. Someday I hope to be this. And you can't get a dog to understand your hopes and your dreams and what you yearn for. It's impossible. That's a personal relationship. You just can't have it. Some of you think you have a personal relationship with your cat. Okay, I just picked a random picture of a cat off the internet. It's not anything specific, it just popped up. Okay, it's not a relationship. With a cat, it's more, it's more like a hostage situation, I think, really. Or more, even more accurately, and you can look this up later, if you know, the Stockholm Syndrome. That's what it is, all right? Stock, oh, you don't have to look. A Stockholm Syndrome is someone is captured, and after a while, they relate and, and become friends with their capturers and serve them. Yeah, right? Is that not an owner of a cat? Okay. All right, I'll, shoot, I meant to put a blank space there, so we take the cat off. <laughs> we'll go here, we'll go here, safe place. All right, so how does God communicate with us? He says, Jesus says to them, I'm going away. And the disciples, he says then, you know, this relationship is gonna change dramatically. They, the disciples think it's gonna cease. They think, oh, if you're, if you're gonna die, it's over. And he's saying, no. No, we will still communicate and love and interact in a deeper and more special way. And he tells them the Holy Spirit's coming. This is what we've been going over. He just told them about what the Holy Spirit would do. We looked at that last week, and now he gets more personal. Now we get into a very personal aspect of this. The Holy Spirit will work for them in specific ways to specific ends, specific goals. Not just them, but us also. But also, it, it really is, in some ways, very specific to them. All right? So first, I want you to see... He tells them, the Holy Spirit, he's the spirit of truth. And, and this is key. This is what the Holy Spirit is all about, the truth. Look at verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes. And so he's telling them, the Holy Spirit is, is the spirit of truth. And he's talking to his disciples. And he's telling them, you're not gonna be able to grasp all of this. This is just way too much. I know, Jesus understands. He's unloading an incredible amount of teaching upon them. But he's telling them, you gotta hear this because that, later the Holy Spirit's gonna remind you of it. He's gonna apply it. He's gonna strengthen you with it. He's gonna free you with it. And so he's gonna, in the teaching, he's gonna teach you. And you know, we all know this is true, right? If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're someone who's involved in training other people, you know people only get a portion of what they're taught, which can be very discouraging for a teacher or a parent. You can go over and over and over and make sure your kid understands, and then they do the opposite, and they look at you and they say, I didn't understand. And I said to him, oh, personal. I said to him, you repeated it 
to me. How could you not understand? And then it's the classic, right? I don't know. I'm like, okay, well then we're done, right? We're done. Once you say, I don't know, the whole thing's over. But see, that's what happens. Jesus knows he's teaching them. He knows they're not gonna get all of it. No one ever gets all of it on the first shot. But he knows the Spirit's gonna come and the Spirit's gonna keep pushing it, keep pushing it so that it gets written down in Scripture so that we have it. So now the Spirit does it for us. Jesus knows this. He knows the Holy Spirit has to come for their sake. This is imperative. The other day I heard about a program that was gonna talk about the Bible and spiritual things, and I was a little intrigued by it. And uh, so I started to listen to it, and they said, we're gonna sum up the message of the Bible in one sentence. And I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive. That is, uh, you must really be sure you got it nailed down. That's not an easy thing to do. And so this is what they wrote. This is what they said. The Bible is the story of man's ancient search for God. Now, I want to tell you, they could not have missed and gone in the opposite direction of the message of the Bible any more clearly than that. They missed the total message, and they did it in one sentence. That's impressive. That's a pretty admirable feat. Admirable is not a good word to say there. It's diametrically opposed. That is diametrically opposed to the message of the Bible. Scripture tells us this. Scripture is an account after an account after an account of men and women trying to get away from God, looking for ways to get away from his presence, to get out from under his authority. And Scripture is account after account after account of God going after people. That's the message. It is not ancient man's search for God. It is God searching for men and women. Let me give you just one. There's so many. Let me just give you one short passage. This is from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 65, so Bill won't get to it for a while in case I'm wrong. Listen. Oh, man, I want to say this. Listen to the heart of a father in this passage. Listen to the broken heart. Here we go again. We talk all the time about scripture, about putting ourselves in the shoes of the people who are there. Put yourself in the shoes of God. Understand what he's saying here, his cry. Here it comes. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who do not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am. Here I am. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. Can you hear the cry of God? I came to you. I said, here I am. Here I am. Come in to the arms of a beautiful father. And they went their own way. They went pursuing their own imaginations. I mean, they did whatever they wanted to do. Whatever felt good in the moment was how they lived and what they did. And so if this felt good, if evil felt good, they did it. If stealing felt good, they did it. If persecuting people, oppressing the poor and widows and orphans, they did it. 
because it made them feel good. Maybe they got money out of it. Maybe they got power out of it, whatever it is. And he says, this is breaking my heart. I've done this for you. Here I am. Here I am. It's the cry of God to wayward people. I know right now there are parents that this resonates with. The cry for a wayward child. You try and there's no response. You do everything you can and there seems to be nothing happening. Here I am. Here I am. That's God. That's God. And think of this. God knows how you feel. He knows how, what it is to have a wayward child, to have a wayward nation of children. He goes after them. He goes after us. He says, I want you. Come to me. Be reconciled to me. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are speaking the very words of God to the world. Please be reconciled to me, to God. Be reconciled to me. God is crying out. And we're supposed to, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're a part of that crying out. We're a part of telling people, be reconciled to God. And that's a part of what, it, this is what the Spirit's involved with. We have this God who re reveals himself. The Holy Spirit reveals the truth of God. And when the truth of God is revealed, we have to submit to it. Now, as soon as I say that, I know there are people, and I've, I've read books. I, I mean, I know what's going on. There are people who say, oh, submit to the truth. Right. I hate that. Submit to the truth of God. That's ridiculous. People hate that idea. And so they run from it. But you know what? Actually, we do it all the time. If you think about it, we submit to truth all the time. No one rages at gravity in their life and how it ruins my dream of flying. I personalized a little bit. When I was a kid, I loved the Green Lantern. I always thought I wanted to fly like the Green Lantern. There's one point, in one point in one of the comics where he just goes whoosh and he just is flying and he's, let me just tell you, he is way faster than Superman. Way faster. Speeding bullet is starter speed for, for the Green Lantern. I just want you to know that. Important facts that you learn in church. This is one of them. And I remember when my, we were dating, my wife said, you remind me of the Green Lantern. That is a, a lie, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we submit to gravity because it is so. The problem is that it takes humility. And that is some of what Jesus is talking. You know, when Jesus talks about having, having the faith of a child, that's part of what he's talking about, that humility, that openness to the truth. God says, I reveal the truth. I reveal the truth to those who are willing to receive it. The Holy Spirit works in this area. And, and some find this hard, but this is, this is what we all do. We submit to truth when it, we realize it. And think about you, think, think about yourself, I guess, as a person. Um, you want to have the right to have people believe what is actually true about you. You understand what I'm saying? You, you want people, someone can't come up to you and say, you know, this is how I like to think of you. I think of you as whatever it is. And you go, but that's not me. Like someone could come up to me and say, Bob, I think you have 
a wonderful singing voice. You, you should be up front singing every week. That's what you should be doing. And I would say, that's a lie. That's a lie. I have empirical evidence that I should not be singing up front every week. In fact, I should not even sing loud from down there because it makes people anxious and it hurts their ears, right? I know that's true about me. So I can't, you can't just believe that about me because it's not true. I have the right, I have the right to know, that, to, to tell you what's true and not true about me. Because if you think it's right for someone to say that, for someone to say, I can think of anything that, that, about you that I want to, I would say, no, you can't. You're violating my personhood. You're treating me as an object that you can just say anything you want about. It's not true. So if we say this, I should be able to find my own truth about God. I should be able to search out and decide what I believe about him regardless of what, say, Scripture tells me. What you're saying when you say that is, you're, you're treating God as an object. You say, God, you're not a person. I get to believe about you whatever I want to believe about you. And you see what that does? You would hate it if someone did that to you. I mean, if they told me they thought I sang really great, I'd kind of lap it up a little bit because it would be kind of nice to imagine that that could be true. But if it was something that I knew wasn't true, and was personally hurtful to me, I would say, you can't do that. You can't just imagine something about me, pick and choose. I'm me. I'm just, this is the way I am. So that shuts the door on a relationship with God when we do that, because we can't treat a person like that and have a relationship. So the Holy Spirit's going to bring us, he's going to bring us the truth. And then I want you to see in number two here, I have it up there. He teaches the truth. There's an emphasis there in the Greek. There's an article there that emphasizes the specific truth, or specific set of truths. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. All right? So he's teaching the truth, and that actually means it's kind of a set of beliefs. There's boundaries on this truth, on what it involves. In other words, he's not going to come and teach you all the truth. The Holy Spirit didn't show up and show the Apostle John nuclear fission. Say, so you see, there's these things. Oh, you don't know about those things. Okay, let's... No, he didn't. He didn't teach him all the truth in the whole world. He's teaching them a very specific truth. And this is key for us as we begin to understand why we have the New Testament. If you leave out the article in the Greek, then it becomes a truth that just evolves over time. It's not a truth that evolves over time. It is the truth. It is a set truth. The result of this is the New Testament. It's the truth written down for us by the power of the Holy Spirit, a specific set of truths that God inspired the writers to write. That's why Peter says this in 2 Peter. He says, no scripture is of private interpretation. This isn't just up to our little ideas. We can't just pick and choose or make it up as we go along. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we don't speak the words of men. We speak the words of the Spirit. John, in the book of Revelation, says, do not add or subtract. See, he's saying this is a specific set of truths. There are boundaries here. Don't add or subtract. And people do that all the time, right? People add 
people subtract. There's different ways of doing it. Let me add, it happens, it happens and has happened a lot in our past, but it still happens today. The idea where people will say the Bible is wonderful, but our leader has received a revelation from God. Okay, a revelation from, from God like that is, that's the ongoing truth can evolve idea. Our leader has received a revelation from God without which you cannot understand the true meaning of scriptures. Do you see how that's adding? But think about how nonsensical that is. It's like Jesus is teaching the disciples and he says, I'm gonna give you a set body of truth, except for about a thousand years from now, there's a key piece that I'm gonna give to one guy that no one will be able to understand this without that key piece. It's ridiculous. He's telling the disciples, teach this truth because you will understand it. Holy Spirit will bring it to your remembrance. And that's what this idea that adds to it is. That is why, I think this is, this is a little bit of a long statement, but I think it's pretty key. The Protestant understanding of the uniqueness of Scripture guards against power-hungry people who claim new revelations. It guards against people who come in and say, okay, it, it, you thought that was what it said, but it doesn't say that. Let us tell you what it really says, because I have the key. God gave me the key for all those poor people for the last 2,000 years that were believing the wrong thing, tough luck. That's adding. People who come and claim a new revelation from God are just trying to get power over other people. And they tell you that is why the understanding of the truth of Scripture like this, will, the Protestant understanding of the truth will always be subversive to the elite. It will always be subversive to the elite because the elite are about power. And Scripture says, I'm giving, remember from last week, this is not about a complex, a burden that holds you down. It's understanding this gives you freedom and power. Can I tell you why? In the last 100 years especially, we've seen the gospel explode in poor and oppressed areas of the world. South America, Africa, huge swaths of Asia, China. Why? Why is that? Because the understanding of Scripture being truth is radically empowering to the poor and to the oppressed. The people who are told they're meaningless and told they're worthless. It tells them the truth of who they are, the truth of who I am. It tells who God is. It tells what is right and wrong. And it says there is meaning in your life. You are never in a position where your life is meaningless. Your life is always full of the potential of accomplishing incredible things for Jesus Christ. Your life has meaning in God. Think how empowering that is to people who are essentially told, you're nothing. Your life means nothing to us. Your life has no meaning in this world. It's empowering and it has exploded. So adding to scripture disenfranchises people. It is an attempt to gain power over them, to enslave rather than to set free. Another way to add is to believe that cultural beliefs are actually script, scriptural beliefs. Um, Hudson Taylor was a missionary who, uh, in the beginning of the modern missions movement, went to China. And there were a number, quite a few missionaries who were there. And uh, they believed that the Christian thing to do was to wear, and to teach the Chinese to wear a coat and a tie, a suit, because that's proper, proper dresses. And all these missionaries tended to live in little enclaves 
uh, all amongst themselves so they could have European-style houses and European-style comforts. And Hudson Taylor came and just, he offended all of them. What did he do? He cut his hair like he was Chinese. He wore the traditional hat that, that he should wear. He grew his beard long, like, and he wore clothes like Chinese. He ate like Chinese. He ate their food. This offended terribly all these missionaries because he said, I want to come represent Jesus, and I think Jesus would look like them. And he started something that was incredible. You know, we can do that. I, I, I used to go to church, and I had a guy tell me one time, he says, I really believe, I really believe it's the Christian thing to do, to wear a tie. To wear a tie to church is the Christian thing to do. And he had lots of oh, respect to God, blah, 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 whatever. And, um, and he, he picked the wrong person. To, I don't, that sounds, that sounds uh, like, a, no, I'm sorry. Like, I think I'm something. But I had just done a study on ties. Rabbit trail, right? You guys know I love rabbit trails. So I just started going, why, where do they come from? Why do we wear them? First of all, they came from the French. Not sure how would I think about that. It started, with, it started with military units. They could tell each other apart. They had the same uniform, but they wore a different, different little thing around their neck hanging down, a sash, a tie. So it started with the military. But then what happened was it went to the upper classes because only the upper classes, and this is my definition of a tie, only the upper classes could wear a piece of cloth that was absolutely worthless, served no purpose on the human body. It doesn't keep you warm. The only thing I found with a tie was sometimes I wipe my mouth with it, but if you got a really colorful one, no one knows, right? It's all stained, right? So then what happened was, as it spread, it became a way of segregating people in church. The sash and tie wearers sit to the front. The people who can't afford to sit to the back. So that's how it started. Now, I know it doesn't mean that today. But I, I don't want to wear a tie. I think, I think Satan invented ties. I really think that's a possibility. I, no, I don't think that. But you see, what, what can happen in our culture? Now, listen, that's an easy one that no one, I hope no one's going to get offended about, right? But we have some things that are basically American culture. And we think, we think that it's from scripture. It's a part of scripture. And that's not true. That is adding. We have to be careful about that. We have to be careful about that. So um, how do we subtract? Okay, this happens a lot. People say, I love the Bible. So much good stuff, but I don't agree with this part. So I don't accept it. We've talked about that. Well, let me just emphasize something that we've talked about. Say 100, maybe 120 years ago, your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, they were alive. It was the end of the 1800s, 1890s, early 2000s, early uh, 1900s. And they would look at Scripture, possibly, maybe not yours, but many, and they would say there's important stuff here. There's great thoughts here, except for this part. We now are very modern people. This is the 1890s after all. And we obviously know that this part is not acceptable because we're wiser than they used to be. There are some things that your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents believe that you would be appalled at. And you might even think is barbaric. Let me give you an example. 
taking Darwin's uh, theory of evolution, some people extrapolated that, that some races were further along on the evolutionary scale than others. Some races were better than others. Some races were more capable than others. Some races were worth more than others. This was typical in many parts of society, even especially sometimes the upper class, in the enlightened time of the 1890s. And they say, we know this is right. The Bible obviously condemns this, so the Bible is wrong here. And there were other areas at all, uh, also. And we would look back, we would look back at this consensus that some people read the scriptures with and discarded some of the scriptures with. We would look at that with horror. We'd say, that's, that's terrible. That is so wrong. That is so unscriptural. It is so wrong. And yet, we can do the same thing. Maybe not that area, maybe in that area, but in, in, in other areas also. We say that Scripture is out of step with the modern world. Scripture is out of set, step with the modern consensus. And I want to tell you, in 100 to 120 years, I think our great-great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren, however that works out for you, would possibly look back at us at some things and be horrified at what we accepted or allowed or believed. They'd be horrified. I, I'm not, I don't, it's not even a guess. I'm sure this will happen because it happens every, it just happens. That's the way it is. It happens personally in our lives also. Think about what you thought was important 15 years ago. Is that still really important? Is that really important? Think about what you like to read or watch or listen to, 20, 15, 20, and is it changed? Yes, because we changed. And somehow, like in the 1890s, people assumed, well, we've reached the pinnacle. We know it all. Now, here we are, 2022, and what do we say? We think it, we don't necessarily say it, but we think it, now we know. Now we know, we got it. We've got it now. No, we don't. No, we don't. So we have to be careful. We have to look. We have to look for ways that we may be adding or subtracting because Jesus, no, that's absolute. This is a set of truths that are not negotiable. So when someone says, this part I don't agree with, this part I don't accept, that person has decided there's a higher standard to pledge their life to. There's something that is higher, that is infallible than what scripture says. Earlier last week, we saw the scripture convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it is found within the body of truth that we call scripture. That's where it happens. That's where it comes from. Um, I, I wanna put a side note in here. I have a book that I'd be happy to give. I got plenty of copies coming. Um, and basically it's on how did we get the New Testament? Because this, is, this passage alludes to it and is more there than I can go into. But the Holy Spirit was involved and what, who were the writers that were accepted? What were the, how did they do that? And, and what I love about this book is that it deals with a very academic subject, but it's short, <laughs> that's key for me. It's short and it's written to our level, right? It's written so people can understand it on how we got our New Testament, and can we trust it, all right? Yeah, just see me, text me, 
Email the church, uh, yeah, whatever. Get in contact with us in whatever way you would like to, and uh, I'll, I'll get you a copy. Be, be, that would be no problem. Okay, so he is the spirit of truth. He teaches the truth, and he glorifies Jesus. Here we go. He will glorify me because it is from me he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you, which basically literally is saying he will take what is mine and he will make it known to you. This truth, the truth that he's going to bring to us is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The story of the Bible is the story of Jesus. It's all about his glory. You know, and we talked about glory is this idea of uh, supreme importance or, or supreme brilliance. The Hebrew word for glory has this idea of a weight. It's weighty, it's brilliant, it's bright, it's beautiful. So when Jesus says that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to glorify him, we need this. This is not some general belief, you know, some kind of idea like I believe in God, it's all intellectual. It is to have his importance and his beauty overwhelm us, to have it change the way we feel and live. The Holy Spirit wants to take what we believe in our heads and make it real in our hearts so that our lives change because of it. The truth that glorifies Jesus tells us all that he is, all that he's done for us, and all that we can be in him. So the purpose of Scripture is to get you to fall in love with Jesus Christ, to see suddenly, like from the very beginnings, to see I'm a sinner, I have no hope. Jesus is a savior. He lived and died for me to give me the hope I don't have, to give me the righteousness I don't have, to give me the grace and the mercy that I don't have. When I accept him as my savior, when I realize what he's done and step out in faith and believe it, I change and we fall bit by bit through the course of our life, we fall more and more in love with Jesus. You know, when you fall in love with someone, you could really define it this way. You could say, you see their glory, their brilliance, their beauty, their, everything about them that makes you go, I love this person. And when you love someone deeply, you get into them. They get into you. You begin to see what they see. You begin to feel what they feel, hear what they hear, love what they love. When you love deeply, you see their glory, you feel it, you enter into it. This is, you know, it's not the cultural idea of superficial beauty. It's something so deep and powerful. When my oldest son was very young, he was having a little problem with disrespect towards his mother. She was very frustrated and reaching the end of her rope. And I just said, Derek, come with me. We went into another room and just lovingly and softly and gently, I just told him, I loved your mother before you ever existed. We brought you into existence. I'm gonna love her when you're gone. If this continues, you're gonna go early. <laughs> Just want you to know that. I loved her before you were here and I will love her after you're gone. So whose side do you think I'm on? Just want you to know where the alignment is here in the power structure. When we see Jesus, when we really see him, Remember, in these last cha in these chapters, Jesus has kept talking. He's saying, hey, stop. Truly, truly, I say unto you, stop. Listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. What he thinks starts to become what we think. 
What he feels starts to become what we feel. What he sees starts to become what we see. And so we have to stop and think in our own lives. You know, when someone hurts you, maybe something very ugly in words. You ever notice someone hurts you like that? It can just, it could just, it doesn't go away. It just stays with you. It bugs you, especially if, it, especially if it's not true, right? It, it, it just weighs on you and you think about it and you grit your teeth and you think, I'd like to do, the, you know, oh, I'll show them hurt. You know, you'd like to strike back vengeance and, and it, you can't shake it. You know, one time, I, somebody, a long time ago, and I just kept thinking, why do I keep thinking about this? It makes me feel terrible. Why do I keep thinking about it? And it happened, it just dawned on me. I value this person's more opinion than I do Jesus's. Because I'm allowing this person's opinion to wreck me. If it keeps bugging you, it shows you that they're important. Their opinion is more important to you than Jesus' opinion of you, at least in one area. And you have to ask yourself, whose approval is most important to me? Whose love is most important to me? Whose side am I on in this power struggle? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the deepest, greatest love. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the deepest, greatest love you will ever experience. You know, when the Apostle Paul, and we, we get some in, insight into this, when, when Peter started sliding back into racism and the Apostle Paul confronted Peter. You, know, you notice one thing, he didn't go to Peter and say, hey, Peter, you're breaking the no racism rule. He didn't exactly say that. You know what he did? He went to Peter and he said, Peter, you're breaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're forgetting the gospel. You're forgetting that you're a sinner saved by grace. The grace of Jesus Christ. You have nothing to feel superior about to anyone. He nails him with that. Essentially, he's saying to Peter, whose approval means more to you than Jesus's? He uses that argument other times. Why? Because because Paul's focusing on the beauty of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And that's only because the Holy Spirit is showing Paul the glory of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. You remember, there's a, there's a, maybe you're not familiar with, there's, Jesus went up a mountain with a couple of his disciples, and it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured into this, and they saw his glory suddenly started shining, right? And so what happens? You remember that? Because I love this story. What happens? Peter doesn't know what to do. And scripture actually tells us Peter didn't know what to do, so he started talking. I relate to that. <laughs> I really relate to that. He had no clue what to say, so he said, say something. It's quiet for a moment. And he goes, Jesus, I got a great idea. Let's build some little temple booths here for you. And, blah, blah, blah. and what does God say? God steps in, this is the reverse Mosley version, the RMV. He says, Peter, shut up. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, you moron. He doesn't say that, but he could say, you idiot. Listen to him, stop. He's telling Peter, stop talking and listen. And he's telling us that. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Not just admire him, not just emulate him. Those are important. 
but listen to him because the Holy Spirit takes the words of Jesus and changes our lives. So we need to read his word. We need, this is the stuff you're probably going, oh, really? Read and study God's word? I've never heard that before. We need to. We need to memorize it. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when we do this, the word of God changes us from the inside out. And let's face it, guys, this is the change we all need. And deep down, we want. I need to change from the inside out because I can take the outside and make it look great and have you guys walk away saying, oh, Bob is so humble. But the inside is where I'm selfish and I have evil thoughts and I think about doing evil things. And inside is where the, I need that. I need an inside out change. We all need that. And this is what is promised in this passage. This is what's promised for us. He's gonna take the truth and he's gonna apply it to our lives and we are going to change. It's the only way it can happen. I can make a New Year's resolution every year to be a better person, to work harder, to do this, to do that. But the only time I'm gonna be able to follow through on the important things in life is when the Holy Spirit empowers me and so I pray to him for help and strength to accomplish what needs to be, to do what needs to be done, to change from the inside out. That's the only way it can happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is true. It is the truth. Your word works in every society and culture in the world. Your word contains the power that we need Father, all of us would love to change and be better people. It is only through your spirit working through the word that we can do this. So, Father, help us to be open to that, ready, yielded, humble to accept the truth, to discard things that don't fit and aren't right. And God, thank you that that is possible and available to us. Reconciliation, the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives is now available. We thank you for that. Help us, Lord, as we leave this place to understand it and to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.